Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Rhea Boyd. She's a pediatrician and a child community health advocate who lives in California. She teaches on the connections between racism and health and health care. Um, she also organizes community projects to address the child and public health impact of structural racism. Uh, let her tell us a little bit more about herself. Hi, thanks for having me today, Max. Yeah, I'm a pediatrician and a child and community health advocate. People often ask when I do these things, like, what's your title? And for me, I think that's my most powerful title is just, what do I actually do? I clinically take care of kids who are sick or injured. Um, and I kind of, in my advocacy work, work on community projects to try to articulate and capture, but also to address the impacts of structural racism on people's health and on our healthcare system more broadly. Gotcha. Um, Dr. Boyd, um, I recently came across something that you wrote in The Lancet, which was a review of this book, Dying of Whiteness, by uh, Jonathan Metzl. And I was really struck by, I guess, how sharp the critique um, of the ways in which structural racism end up impacting the lives of Black people and at, um, and, and at times sort of like indirectly through, um, I guess, the vector of, say, the electorate or pe- uh, people's choices uh, when it comes to uh, attitudes towards, um, you know, like gun-related policy or even like healthcare insurance. So um, I wanted to sort of hear more of your thoughts um, on that concept, I guess. Yeah, so to break the concept down a little bit, uh, I think it might be important to just define some of the terms. So the word white refers to a racial status, which is typically affixed to someone's skin tone or for the medical students listening to their phenotype. Um, But whiteness is not the same thing as white. So whiteness describes the structural apparatus in which that racial status, white, functions um, and gains meaning and changes over time. How does that happen? It happens through laws and norms and policies that empower, normalize, favor, and reward white people as a population. Um, So a bit of the distinctions that are important to make is the difference between white people as individuals and whiteness as it functions at a population level. And Mm -hmm. what I was highlighting in that book review, um, based on Jonathan Metzl's brilliant work, is that whiteness, uh, as it functions at a population level, engenders racism, structural racism, at a population level, and that that harms everyone, um, including white people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that is the way that Metzl put that together and then the way I kind of built on that um, to underscore my points is um, something I don't think people were maybe talking about as much, like Mm -hmm. does investing in whiteness structurally or the maintenance of that structural apparatus that affords differential rights and resources for white people as a population does investing in that harm people? And the answer overwhelmingly is yes. Mm-hmm. And so then one of the conclusions of your essay was specifically about these, um, these structures, but also um, that people should 
disinvest from whiteness as a structure. Um, and, uh, and I'm curious what your thoughts are in terms of like, what does it look like, right, to disinvest from whiteness? Yeah, I tried to use some examples towards the end of the paper that might make it more tangible because I think one of the other challenging things about confronting whiteness is the way that every racial or ethnic group can also contribute to the construction and maintenance of whiteness as a structurally ordering principle in society. Mm -hmm. So what's an example of that? One of the examples I used at the end of the paper was um, some of the cases that are confronting affirmative action. So there, the most recent case was from um, a select group of Chinese students, Chinese American students at Harvard. Um, this case has been written about everywhere. Mm -hmm. I particularly referred to in that piece and referenced um, an article in the New Yorker about the case. Um, but essentially the students felt they were being discriminated against by Harvard's um, admissions policy because the subjective portion of their admissions criteria included interviews in which they weren't rated as highly as African-American students who were admitted. And they felt like their other scores were otherwise higher than that same population. And so they were saying, you know, that felt unfair and that they were being systematically discriminated against in that way. Um, but using affirmative action, which has historically existed to create spaces within higher education for groups who have been excluded as a result of structural racism, like African Americans, like certain immigrant populations, like um, Latinx and indigenous populations, like to use affirmative action as the case for why you are more deserving of higher education re-entrenches um, how whiteness structures access to education in the first place. Because mm -hmm. the question isn't um, what's wrong with the overall system that prefers in certain racial and ethnic groups over others. The question is instead why are African-American or Latinx or indigenous students more admitted than Asian students? Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yes. Like, it reinforces the way whiteness um, structures education. And the result of that, if they were successful and they were able to kind of further undermine how affirmative action works, is that less African-Americans, Latinx and indigenous students who relied on affirmative action to prevent their exclusion from higher education, they would have less access to higher education. And we know access to higher education and actually achieving higher education is intimately related to life expectancy. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted readers to make that link that it's not just a case about, can I go to this school? It's about how do we shape access to education based on whiteness? And how does that then affect the life expectancy of all groups who may be excluded from higher education? Mm -hmm. So this is something that's come up more recently, um, you know, considering the times we're living in, um, you know, COVID-19 pandemic, um, all the data that we've seen continues to show, depending on the state where you're in, um, that Black and or Latinx um, people are 
disproportionately at higher risk of infection with COVID-19, but also higher risk of mortality. And so when thinking about this, you know, as the data started uh, being published either through news outlets, but also some um, sort of peer review studies that have come out, um, sort of in parallel, we've started to see this, you know, primarily white and conservative-led movement that uh, um, has been pushing for um, a relaxation in the, you know, the shelter-in-place or stay-at-home orders that different governors had been um, had mandated, and you know, basically across the country, we saw white militia, uh, you know, sort of basically shutting down the state capital in Michigan. Um, you know, it's kind of been all over the place, and so. This moment kind of culminated last week when we uh, we heard folks on TV basically respond, well, you know, I'm not too worried because when you look at the demographics, um, it, you know, it doesn't look like it's going to happen to me or it doesn't look like I am at risk or people like me are at risk. And it also was covered in this Washington Post article uh, where this journalist was speaking with, um, you know, sh like shopping mall attendants. So I'm curious um, what your thoughts are um, related to this moment, right, where we see primarily white people who are, you know, sick and tired of being told to stay at home when it looks like they are not at risk of uh, either becoming ill or dying of COVID-19, even though that might be an illusion. There is a lot to unpack there. Yes, uh, um, yes. <laughs> we can maybe start to separate it in threads. I think mm -hmm. One thread of what you've just outlined is the stark racial inequities that have emerged in the wake of this pandemic. And mm -hmm. in the United States, it has taken a particularly alarming toll on African Americans, especially those that live in areas that are predominantly African American, especially those that live in segregated parts of the United States. Some of the figures are that like African-Americans nationally about 14% of the population, but make up 28% of cases. But those who live in areas that are predominantly African-American are six times, and in some areas, seven times more likely to die from COVID-19. They have six mm -hmm. and seven times the death rate as compared to areas that are predominantly white. Um, so one thread is the stark inequities that we can definitely discuss. Running parallel to those inequities, one then has to question how the perceptions of risk are shaped by public consumption of those inequities. When you put into the news that African-Americans have a higher death rate, are people um, interpreting that in a racialized way? Does it make um, African-Americans, for example, feel more at risk? If you get sick, are you more likely to die? Like This is a virus we don't know very much about all the way around. We don't really know all of the risk factors that lead to increased illness. We know all the inequities that exist structurally that make people sick, no matter what the cause, the underlying causes, but the, we don't know specifically how this virus works. So I'm sure, you know, people who feel more affected might be taking different actions to try to limit their risk of being affected. At the same time, the racialization of the virus may also lead, as you've noted, white Americans to feel in some ways immune. If the death rate is higher for those populations, perhaps I'm not as great as at um, great of a risk of having a bad outcome or of getting the infection entirely. Um, I think that is one of the problems of racializing disease. 
uh, I think it's an inaccurate uh, an incorrect interpretation of what's going on. And it speaks to the lack of racial literacy we have as a population and the lack of health literacy our federal administration has. I mean, the racialization of this disease began most prominently with our own president trying to attribute the disease to certain ethnic groups. Like, I won't repeat what he said, but that has contributed to violence against Asians, hate crimes. Um, it contributes to the notion that this isn't something that starts here um, and spreads here. And so perhaps that's why we had a bit of a delayed response because we felt like this was a foreign born, foreign located illness when it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, mm -hmm. The consequences I think of us racializing this illness have been devastating all around. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, thinking about especially, you know, perhaps being at least hopefully on maybe a tail end of um, how quickly the virus is spreading um, and, you know, how soon some states are opening versus others. I guess my question to you is how do you envision or how do you foresee um, those, you know, the impact of these attitudes, right, on, um, on outcomes moving forward? Yeah, I think one has to question, and a number of prominent journalists and thinkers have, how does the more, how does the reality that African Americans and indigenous populations like the Navajo, who have their highest rate among the Indian Health Service, um, and Latinx populations and Native, uh, Native Hawaiian Pacific Islanders, like how does are knowing that they are suffering disproportionately from this illness shape the fact that our government is then drawing back federal support to address it. I think it's, it's the right question to ask. I think it's astute to notice that these things are happening in tandem and in parallel. That's something that we used to be incredibly concerned about, that we watched balloon and took, you know, exceeding effort to contain by trying to pass, you know, shelter in place ordinances and rapidly deploy new healthcare models like telemedicine and outdoor clinics and outdoor hospitals, like so much shifted in such a little amount of time when we were really concerned. Mm -hmm. And then as we reach kind of like the penultimate of what appears to be a disparity in this illness, now there's less concern and we should just open everything like tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I think, um, I think it's a legitimate critique and I think it's a dangerous one. Yeah. So think, you know, speaking of parallels, uh, the pressure to open up that is happening, uh, is also happening, um, sort of like in tandem with people, uh, you know, pushing conspiracies. Uh, and as a pediatrician, I'm sure you deal with maybe not necessarily within the community that you serve, but you deal with some level of, I guess, mistrust or disbelief in the effectiveness of vaccines. And a lot of the conspiracies that are sort of like floating around right now are around, you know, this concept that, oh, maybe the virus was fabricated in a lab. Um, and, you know, we know for some of us, like, 
some people are like, I'm not going outside until we get a vaccine. But some people are like, oh, you will not come near me with a vaccine. Um, so when there is a vaccine, if ever, uh, I'm, I'm very hopeful that there will be. Um, I, as a pediatrician, I guess like, what are, you, what are your concerns uh, and large, right? Because a lot of the anti-vaxxer movement um, out there are sort of like driven by um, the same people who are, you know, like asking for outside to be open for lack of a better description. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think there's a number of takes around this. One, one that makes sense to me is that as a population, this, the response to this pandemic is illustrating that we lack a robust health literacy. Like people don't understand fundamental things about the transmission of illness and about ways to stay well. Um, I think anyone who questions, for example, the utility of wearing a mask is revealing that they don't understand what droplet transmission means, mm -hmm. um, for example. So one, I think part of these conspiracies are only taking root because the ground is fertile because we don't have a strong health literacy as a population. Mm -hmm. I think if you wanted to dig a layer underneath that, that, I think I would start to then question how strong our educational system has been to promote health literacy in the country mm -hmm. um, at really every level. Like where would people learn this? You would start learning about the body in like grade school and in high mm -hmm. school, in health classes, in biology. Like how robust are those curriculums? How much are we really asking of people? How widespread is access to education in a wealthy country like the United States? Um, so one, we lack health literacy, which says something about the failures of our health, the failures of our um, education system. Mm -hmm. I think then on top of that, it's only made worse by the deep partisan divisions that have been sown by extremist groups in our country over the last couple of decades that really became came to a head during and after the Obama administration. I think we talked a bit about the racialization of this disease. I think you could talk a bit about the politicization of this disease. Like, what does it mean that people down party lines want to um, adhere to public health advice? Mm -hmm. um, what does it mean that people down party lines mistrust certain public health advisements? Um, I think it, it, it illustrates some of the dangers of these divisions, that they're not it's not that there's two sides and there's good people on both sides and both sides are equally correct and both sides warrant our engagement. It's that mm -hmm. having such a far spread between people makes it really difficult when you need the entire population to be unified around actions to protect everyone. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it has also made it a lot harder to implement and institute nationwide protections and why we as a country are really embarrassingly failing at doing so. Um, the vaccine is a more challenging question to take up. 
because vaccine development is difficult. You know, like we don't have vaccines against the common cold and it comes back every Every year. year. You know, we are lucky to have a vaccine against the flu, but we always, you know, harangue how it's not that effective. Like our last vaccine covered 55 to 65% of circulating strains. Like it wasn't an awesome vaccine. It's not like the MMR, for example, like Mm -hmm. one measles vaccine and you need two total, but one and you get like 90 to 95% like immunity. That is not what the flu vaccine has been. You have to take it every single year, which speaks to how flu as a virus works, as it changes every year, as the strains that circulate changes. And it speaks to how difficult it is to develop effective vaccines around viruses. So even the notion that we'll have a vaccine in any short order, I think is maybe, um, what's the right word? I don't know idealistic like we probably will not like the measures that we're all fighting about having to do are probably the ones that are going to be at our disposal to effectively do like Mm -hmm. if you don't want to wear a mask because you're waiting for a vaccine you may be waiting a long time Mm -hmm. vaccines on the order of what we need for this virus i mean the people who create it will probably win a nobel prize because they'll understand something new about viruses we never knew before right um so Waiting for the vaccine, I think, is also really hard. And in the, because of all the other things I talked about, the partisanship, the um, lack of health literacy, I think it also complicates this process to develop and get the public to then accept a vaccine if one becomes available. Mm-hmm. Now, besides the partisanship, um, I want to dig down on something that's been concerning to me, at least. Um, it's that, you know, obviously within, uh, within our community, um, you know, uptake of like the flu vaccine, you know, can be dicey. So I'll tell a little anecdote uh, and, and I don't mean to generalize. So I, Christmas, um, so over Christmas break, I was home with family, literally four generations of black folks, right? Uh, and I'm talking about the flu shot. I'm like, hey, y'all, have y'all gotten your flu shot yet? Um, so this is my family's from DC and North Carolina, uh, and everybody's like, no, 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 we're not getting the flu shot. And I understand, right, because part of the concern is like, well, the flu shot's not really like 100% effective, um, and, you know, some people in general are just like concerned that, I don't know, like the government is up to something, you know, with the flu shot, like that's something that's come up um in talking to family and also friends so i'm curious you know in this moment right especially having seen the cdc struggle um with their messaging uh related to coronavirus uh you know they've kind of like waffled back and forth like there was a time where the cdc was telling healthcare workers to wear bandanas um uh if they have no other you know ppe someone wrote an article in stat news not long ago uh, about Basically, it was like, where is the CDC? Like, the CDC used to be the authority that you went to for any kind of, like, disease control, right? Like, uh, and for me, as a medical student, I've always, up until this point, leaned on the CDC. And I'm thinking about the after-COVID times, right? How is the way in which the government literally fumbled this moment, how do you see it affecting specifically 
um, communities where there already isn't a lot of trust between like say the community and the healthcare like apparatus for obvious reasons including you know like mistreatment discrimination like um, abusive experimentation but also mistrust between the same communities and the government especially after the government either left people hanging or just like altogether fumbled the response to the pandemic again i feel like there's a ton to unpack there <laughs> i'll say don't worry um there are a couple of strains i think in what you said one that i wanted so i'm going to try to touch on three one is one of the challenges of the pandemic is that healthcare institutions had to shift to crisis care so they many uh, mine included um, mm -hmm. decreased our access for regular preventative services to try to increase our access and availability to provide crisis care. Mm -hmm. That decrease, even though we're only talking about on the order of months, has led to a significant drop in vaccination rates for children for common preventable illnesses, um, including things like measles. And these were huge drops, mm -hmm. like in some areas up to 60% less kids got the vaccines that they needed mm -hmm. when it was time over the last couple of months. And so one of the concerns following this pandemic, as we maybe enter some period of recovery before the next recirculation of COVID, one of the concerns is that we may also see with the recirculation of COVID, a resurgence of other vaccine preventable illnesses among children that then will enter the population. So mm -hmm. for any parents who are listening, please contact your pediatrician to get all your regular scheduled vaccines, especially for your kids if they've never been vaccinated for things like MMR, varicella, et cetera, before. Two, I think bringing up mm -hmm. flu vaccination rates are an interesting comparison because if the virology, if like the way this virus works is similar to flu, where it changes every year and you have to keep getting the vaccine every year, flu might be a good comparison vaccine to think about what the uptake will be among the U.S. population. And just peeking at CDC data from 2018, 2019, which is the last year for which we have data, like overall in the population, 62% of kids got vaccines, but only 45% of adults did, got the flu vaccine. So already parents are more likely and people are more likely to have their kids mm -hmm. vaccinated than they are to have adults vaccinated. Um, and that overall 60% is almost true for every population mm -hmm. of kids. So overall, it's 62% of kids, but it's 60% of white kids, 59% of black kids, 66% of Hispanic kids. So they have a little higher uptake, 71% of Asian kids in the catch-all Asian category, um, and 58% of indigenous kids which is a little bit low below the mean but overall about two-thirds of kids are getting their vaccines but for adults that span gets a lot wider so 45 mm -hmm. percent of adults overall get the flu vaccine only 39 percent of african-americans do only 37 percent of hispanic adults do that's despite as we showed mm -hmm. like hispanic children having the highest vaccination rates basically second to asians hispanic adults have essentially the lowest second to indigenous adults who have 37% as well. So mm -hmm. I think concerns about the COVID vaccine will probably emerge from that same con from that same context that people don't go and get vaccines for viruses every single year. People take their chance with flu. And there's 
an incredible amount of misinformation mm-hmm. that circulates every year around the flu vaccine alone. That you know, getting the flu vaccine gave me flu, which is impossible. But if you got sick shortly after you went in to get your vaccine, it's probably that you were exposed to somebody who was also in that healthcare facility who had flu. But the timing relationship of that sometimes makes people, you know, inaccurately interpret that the flu vaccine made them sick. So I'm sure the same concerns at least will accompany the COVID vaccine and then way more, right? This vaccine is developed more quickly than our other ones. We have decades, you know, years and years and years and years Mm -hmm. and years of experiments to know that the vaccines that we've been giving kids are incredibly safe. One of the safest and most important infectious disease preventative experts in medicine ever. But the COVID vaccine we're just learning about this virus, like right. how will we know it will even be that effective, let alone that populations will really want to get it. So I think, uh, I think to your point, uptake of this mm-hmm. vaccine, even if it comes around, may be low if, you know, the past presence of the flu vaccine is any indication. And then you also asked about like mistrust. Mistrust is this black box. I often Mm -hmm. try not to wander into. I try not, so I'm somebody who writes and thinks and tries to work at the intersection Mm. of racism and healthcare. And when I bring that conversation up to people, um, honestly, particularly to white people, mistrust is always the kind of the analytic they want to use to explain individual and population-based behaviors based on race. Like, oh, the reason African-Americans are sicker is because they mistrust the system and that's why they delay care and that's why they don't come in. It's not that simple, exactly. Like, one, it's not just mistrust. It actually is African-Americans who, and really any, it's not just African-Americans. I'm sure this is also true of certain indigenous populations. Any group that has been, historically experimented on and who has received inequitable, undignified care in their own lifetime, them themselves, their families who have actual tangible examples of how this system is unequal and unfair and unjust. It is a correct analysis to then avoid going back to that same kind of care, like to just call that mistrust, like they don't, understand Mm -hmm. the benevolence of medicine, misses the structural analysis these populations have carried correctly for centuries that we are now just kind of accepting as dogma and canon Mm -hmm. in medicine. So I think it's not just mistrust. Um, Yeah, it's, it's appropriate caution in the face of what is a real legitimate risk that they appropriately Obsessed. Um, yeah, so it's not just mistrust. And I, I don't think our goal is that people trust us. We don't need people to trust us in healthcare. And I say us meaning healthcare providers. We don't need you to trust us for us to do the right thing by you. Like trust is a process that comes after we demonstrate over and over and over again with fidelity and reliability that we're not going to harm you. Like that will come if we just do the right thing over and over and over and over and over mm-hmm. again. But to ask people for trust kind of up front in the beginning kind of evades that necessary process. Like, I don't even think we're at the point 
to be talking about whether or not people should trust us. All the evidence says they should not. Like, if you want them to, change how things go. Change how you treat populations. Change how you treat individual patients. You know? Mm. So, I, these are the reasons why I usually just let people have the mistrust conversation while I'm like, let me talk about structurally what has to fundamentally change about how you deliver care, about how you, you know, segregate patients by facility, about how you determine access to certain medical resources. Mm. That's deep. Um, Okay, I have one last question. If you had a wish list of how you would like to see um, healthcare delivery change post-COVID, you know, a short wish list, what Mm -hmm. would that include? I know it's a a heavy question, but just give me like a few points. Gosh, I'm curious what other people have said. I mean, top of the list for me has got to be universal health care. Mm-hmm. And that's different than universal health insurance. I think we have to disconnect the healthcare system from the profit incentives that undergird its deep inequalities. Um, I think that would go a long way towards closing some of the racial health inequities, not, not all, them, mm-hmm. but some. Um, to segregation, I would absolutely, and maybe this is also number one. There's two number ones. We need universal health care for everyone, and we need to desegregate the delivery systems by which that care is administered. That includes desegregating the facilities, so the workforce that works at these facilities, because gosh, so many reasons we can go into why the workforce segregation contributes to health inequities for those same populations. Mm -hmm. But briefly, healthcare is like 17% of our GDP, at least it was post-COVID or pre-COVID, excuse me. So healthcare is a huge part of our GDP. It often is the number one employer in localities. Mm And our exclusion systematically of non-white professionals um, is is one of the forces that contributes to income and wealth inequalities at the local level. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're the biggest employer and people can't work for you, that's a form of structural racism that has huge economic impacts. So one we need to eliminate segregation in who gets to participate in our workforce. Two, we have to eliminate segregation in how healthcare is delivered. So we have a tiered system. If you have private insurance, which means you probably got it from your employer, which means you probably have more, way more than a living wage, you probably are kind of handsomely um, compensated for your work. Like all of those things mean you're more likely to receive care in a nicer facility Mm -hmm. with trained specialists. You know, you're less likely to see a trainee when you come in. You're going to see the attending. You are less likely to have delays for necessary, um, for necessary acute services and for just general um, screening and preventative services. Those lack of delays matter. These are all the reasons that contribute to why you would live longer. And even during COVID, there's been, I keep retweeting this article every time anyone sends it out. (laughs) Um, 
that Kaiser piece that basically illustrated that patients who go to private hospitals are getting more COVID care than patients who don't. Mm. Um, so that way of segregating care goes by usually insurance status, which puts you into that other pool, but we know who's insured and who's not in the United States. Mm-hmm. Like Hispanics overall have the lowest rate of health insurance and um, African-Americans live predominantly in the 17 states that failed to expand Medicaid. Medicaid. Yep. Yeah. So as soon as you say your health insurance gives you a ticket to a better facility, that is a way to racially segregate care. And we have to eliminate that, which is also why we need universal health care. Um, and then I think medicine should do something about desegregating our uh, residential landscape in the United States. Mm-hmm. This is one that I haven't written about, so I'm going off cuff here, but I think if we agree that it's true, and it is, that many hospital systems are the number one employers in localities, like when you drill down to neighborhoods and cities, if hospitals are the number one employer, they attract a workforce to that area because they are the employer. If as the employer, their workforce is predominantly white, Mm -hmm. then the population who is kind of subsidized to live near that employer also becomes predominantly white. That relationship between who lives near medical facilities and who lives distant from medical facilities shapes access to care and racial health inequities. Mm -hmm. So I also think healthcare needs to own its role in contributing to residential segregation in the United States and also to untangling um, its contributions. Well, thank you so much for such a great list. And uh, it was a pleasure having you on the pod. It's been a long time coming. Uh, Thank you. This is really awesome. Thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.